This is an RNZ podcast. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at how the 2022 Football World Cup was about to begin in the tiny Gulf state of Qatar, which was obviously ill-suited to the task, but had persuaded football's world governing body FIFA otherwise back in 2010. Qatar's rulers have spent a fortune on preparing for it since then, but not on the wages of migrant workers or their health and safety. About 6,000 of them have reportedly died building the stadiums since then. But why spend all that money, effort and workers' lives? Well, in a word, sports washing. Using a major tournament to project the image of the country as a modern and fun place to the rest of the world with the help of the media. And also with the help of hired celebrities like Morgan Freeman and former England football captain David Beckham, who actually backed the rival World Cup bids of the US and UK respectively before FIFA gave the cup to Qatar. So how's that sports washing going? The BBC's football frontman Gary Lineker claimed that the coverage of the UK's public broadcaster from Qatar wouldn't shy away from the big background issues there once the football kicked off this week. And BBC TV was as good as his word right from the kickoff. From accusations of corruption in the bidding process to the treatment of migrant workers who built the stadiums where many lost their lives. Homosexuality is illegal here. Women's rights and freedom of expression are in the spotlight. There's a tournament to be played, one that will be watched and enjoyed around the world. Stick to football, say FIFA. Well, we will, for a couple of minutes at least. And while BBC viewers in the UK were watching that, and then an interview with Amnesty International about human rights in Qatar, the opening ceremony was only available from the BBC online. The commercial UK broadcaster ITV didn't show the opening ceremony either, and one of their main presenters, the former captain of Ireland, Roy Keane, told ITV viewers this. The World Cup shouldn't be here. It shouldn't be here. It's been mentioned there with the people there about the corruption regarding FIFA. We've got a country the way they treat migrant workers, gay people. And that's got to be, I think it's great that it's been brought up. They shouldn't have the World Cup here. You can't treat people like that. And you don't often hear presenters trashing the very product that their own networks have spent millions to show. On the podcast The News Agents, veteran political journalist John Sopel told his co-host Emily Maitlis that Qatar might now just have buyer's remorse. I had the most fascinating conversation this weekend with someone who has worked closely with the Qataris throwing a completely different light on what they now think in Qatar and it is broadly... Why on earth have we bothered? We've spent £200 billion on this. We are vilified over LGBTQ rights. We are attacked for being corrupt over the manner in which we got the World Cup. We are seen as kind of Victorian in the labour laws that we have and the way that guest workers have been treated. Nothing good has come to us. Because, of course, what did Qatar have before all this started? They were the little kid. They weren't Saudi with MBS going around, you know, slaughtering journalists. They were anonymously rich. They had wealth. They had gas supplies. They they quietly got on with things in a sort of Western-friendly way. And now they've blown it all up, right? They're in the spotlight. And a spotlight only works if it makes you look better, not worse. And now they have made this public demonstration of having the World Cup and you'd have to say it pretty much has gone to shit in so many ways. And they're rubbish at football. (laughs) And and, and the crowning glory, they were crap on the pitch last night.
It was veteran political journalist John Sopel and Emily Maitlis, former BBC political correspondents, who now host the news podcast called The News Agents. And not only was Qatar's team not much good in Game 1, as they said, on Wednesday, the tournament even provided a platform for their big rivals in the region, Saudi Arabia, who engineered one of the most memorable upsets ever in world football by beating Lionel Messi's Argentina. So money can't buy Qatar everything, it seems. And on the Guardian's Football Weekly podcast last week, Barney Rone, in the room when FIFA gave the tournament to Qatar 12 years ago, recalled the moment like this. We've normalised this. Like, There's not supposed to be corruption. But instead, <laughs> 16 of 22 voting FIFA Exco members have either been banned from football for life since this happened, some kind of stain on their... Before the vote, two members of the Exco were kind of ruled out from voting because of proven corruption issues against them. I mean, it is incredible. Well, the spotlight on Qatar and its issues has definitely taken the heat off FIFA, which is now under new management. The old management had to go because of the exposure of that normalised corruption. And one of only two insiders ever to blow the whistle on FIFA is Bonita Merciades. Now, when she worked for Australia's Football Association, it too was bidding to host the 2022 World Cup. A waste of time, as it turned out, because Qatar already had it in the bag. But in the process, she saw things that she didn't want normalised, and she published the allegations herself, first online, and then in a book called Whatever It Takes, and she went on to start her own company, Fair Play Publishing. This week, I asked her how she went about lifting the lid on FIFA's corruption and if the media now would keep up its scrutiny on Qatar during this World Cup. There's been a small band of media that has maintained an interest and maintained the pressure on these issues for the best part of a decade. And I think some of those will continue to do so. But for most of the sports media and, and you know, they frankly, most of the football media, particularly in this country, have sort of really only discovered these issues in the past week. Qatar is not going to change because of what some people say at a World Cup tournament, because after all, they haven't changed in the past 12 years. And likewise, FIFA is not going to change because of pressure from fans. The only thing that will make FIFA change is pressure from broadcasters and sponsors. As a FIFA insider, at one point you turned whistleblower. I mean, I guess you would have been hoping uh, that this World Cup would have been taking place in Australia because Australia had a bid in and you were part of that as well. If we go back, what was it that turned you uh, into a whistleblower? Well, I think it was basically Australia's conduct in that bid. Um, If Australia had won their 2022 hosting rights, it would have been inappropriate as well. I think one of the best things that happened for world football was for Russia and Qatar to win those votes, the 2018 and 2022 respectively, back in 2010, because it made people focus their attention on what the hell was going on at FIFA. If uh, a relatively benign country like Australia had won, no one would have taken any notice and they would have thought it was based on merit, but it wouldn't have been. Particularly that bidding process for 2018-2022, which I can talk to, but certainly uh, from Australia's perspective, we ran a reputational risk and we did things that we ought not to have done in terms of trying to win that vote. It would have been wrong um, on the basis on which Australia was bidding for Australia to be hosting this, but it's good that we are at least focused now on how FIFA is running the, the integrity of their business decisions because that what, it, what that's what it boils down to, both in terms of how this corrupt process came to be and how we're now, now playing a World Cup in a country where 
the normal sorts of rights that you and I and our compatriots take for granted um, are just ignored. So there's tremendous and clear public interest in knowing about the processes that go on and the possibilities and the actual evidence of, of corruption being revealed. Did you find that eventually you had to publish some of your own findings on your own website, first of all, didn't you? Was it perhaps that other media were afraid to um, publish, you know, your conclusions that you had to do it yourself? I think the answer to that is both. <laughs> 12 years ago or 10 years ago when these issues were being raised by me and a few others, and I'm, I mean literally a few others around the world, there was no media standing with us in Australia in particular. They were, they were behind us hiding. And I did the right thing. I raised these issues internally several times. And in the end, I was sacked because it was too uncomfortable. And we had three very expensive international consultants that we had engaged who told my boss that we were going to win the World Cup um, and they believed it. I thought it was a load of bunkum and I was proved right. Um, and, you know, as with any whistleblower, if you want to bring attention to issues, you have to be prepared to make yourself extraordinarily unpopular and um, put yourself out there and raise these issues in the media. In terms of people taking notice of them, very few people um, understood that there were broader issues at play. It wasn't just an issue of whether Qatar had a brown paper bag moment or something like that. First of all, it was much more strategic than that in terms of Qatar. But what was really at stake was the integrity of FIFA's processes and the fact that, um, or really the integrity of FIFA's culture and the way they were comfortable with making decisions and the fact that that whole bidding process was set up for the types of things that went on, the swapping of votes, the currying of favours, FIFA allowed that to happen. They knew it would happen. And as with anything, almost like the human rights issue now with FIFA, they just turn a blind eye. Their way of handling it is to turn a blind eye and pretend it's not happening and try to divert your attention with something else. But single-minded journalists like famously Andrew Jennings you know, investigated this sort of stuff for years at FIFA and you know, the IOC, big sports bodies. You, know, you, would, you would think that the media should be alive to... Uh, the possibility of similar types of stories uh, and these sorts of things recurring. It's, it's, does it disappoint you that they didn't seem to have the appetite for uh, what you'd uncovered? It was disappointing, and I have to say Andrew, who passed away in January this year, sadly, um, was a giant um, amongst journalists in this area, and he was a great friend of mine and also a mentor to some extent. Um, the smock group of journalists who earn a living from football um, from having contacts and having networks and, you know, being able to get the latest scoop on who's going to be in a squad. And that's their bread and butter. So there's very little appetite for anything that would be about the issues within football. That is left to some extent to, uh, I guess, what I would call the, the non-sporting well, non journalists, the investigative journalists. So in a, in a country like Australia, I, I would put it down to that. These people have to make a living and they make a living by having these networks with, with the local football, uh, you know, those who run football within their country. It's very different in countries like um, the UK and Germany and France where they have very well-developed uh, football media and they actually, one journalist can range across a, a whole range of issues. I mean, you mentioned Andrew Jennings. He was very much a specialist in sports investigative journalism. Jens Weinreich from Germany 
is very much a specialist in sports investigative journalism. But then you get someone like David Conn um, from The Guardian, in fact, who is a crossover. He will do investigations and he he's not now, but he was then also doing the day-to-day sports stuff. So it's a very much more sophisticated and broader market um, in terms of, of football media overseas. Um, so... You know, that, that's why there was all, always, a, I think, a greater understanding of what the broader systemic issues were with, with FIFA and world football governance um, internationally than there was and still remains the case in Australia, even today. Um, you know, the journalists in Australia, with, with literally less than a handful of exceptions, do not want to know about these issues. They absolutely do not want to know. Yes, Jens Weinreich, who you mentioned there, he even publishes a magazine, doesn't he, called Sport and Politics, um, which is funny because, you know, those are the things sports people are desperate to say should never be, you know, joined together, keep them apart, sport and politics don't mix. Um, yeah, but he, he decides to sort of grasp the nettle by yeah, calling the magazine by that name. Yeah, and, and look, that magazine's a great read if you can get hold of it. I mean, I think his most recent edition was earlier this year when Andrew Jennings passed away and there was a tribute edition done to Andrew with 50 contributors from around the world talking about the impact of Andrew on their lives, um, which was which is absolutely a great read. But anyone who says sports and politics don't mix is living in la-la land, frankly. Mm. Of course sport and politics mix. And look at... You know, look at politicians for a start, but look at also the sports politicians. Um, you know, Gianni Infantino got a, a medal of freedom from... Uh, <laughs> he was at the G20 the other day saying, well, why don't you just stop the Ukraine war for four weeks while the World Cup is on? All of these sports politicians, you know, Thomas Bach from the Olympic movement is the same. They're happy to turn up at all of these events with world leaders. They're certainly happy to get all their perks, such as green light corridors and VVIP treatment, like politicians wouldn't demand because they'd be in trouble with their electorate. They also turn around when it suits them, as FIFA has done recently, and wrote to all of the 32 member nations who are taking part in the World Cup to say, oh, look, you know, forget about all of these issues. We're not going to talk about those during the World Cup. You know, let's just get on with the football. So... Sport from from a FIFA, from a football politician's perspective, sport and politics mixes absolutely when they want government funding, when they want to be seen glad handling and dancing around world leaders, um, but they don't want it to mix when it actually comes to raising difficult issues. And that's what FIFA is very good at: telling everyone to look the other way while other di- while there are other issues to address. Well, you took part recently in a fascinating uh, discussion for the Global Investigative Journalism Network about investigating FIFA and big sports bodies. And that was one of the points you made was look at the top brass and the important officials and where they go and who they hang out with. You know, that's often interesting and tells a tale in and of itself. And after that, there was a tip sheet advice for journalists who want to get into this area. And amongst the list attract whistleblowers by publishing initial smaller stories on wrongdoing. And that's what you yourself did as a whistleblower, as we spoke about earlier. Uh, But another uh, thing that's on the list here is to re-examine the evidence that's in plain sight, like photos and annual reports, things published by uh, national sporting bodies. Is that part of what uh, led you to the uh, discoveries that you made? Yes, it is. I mean, because I didn't have the resources of a media house, so I just spent an awful lot of time looking at publicly available information. And, 
you know, sometimes you can go down a rabbit hole and it comes to nothing and other times it does come to something. You know, for example, um, I found within CAS, you know, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, there was a case in around about 2013, 2014, where a person from Africa who was known to be a known fixer for football um, who had been approached by three of the countries bidding for the 2022 World Cup to see what it would take to make the African, four African voters, or really three African voters, um, vote for them in the 2022 vote. Now, he named those countries as being Australia, South Korea and Qatar. Um, and that coincides from the Australian perspective, that coincides with everything I know. And it also then coincided with what came out later from the Garcia report that was done by FIFA, in which the president of the Cameroon Football Association said, well, yes, he was approached by Australia and he thought, you know, what the hell were they doing this for? And that was on a public website, but no one had noticed it. It was in French. and I went to the trouble of getting the really relevant paragraphs professionally translated, and it was there in in plain sight for everyone to see. So um, I was aware of some media treatment that was happening for FIFA that seemed a little bit out of whack with what was really going on. And then I found a photograph of Rupert Murdoch having visited FIFA headquarters in January 2012 and that coincided with this favorable media treatment and that allowed you know that led me to some more questions as well so there are all sorts of things like that that you can find through just sort of digging away yeah another of the hints that came out of that discussion uh, by the gijn was david con saying check on sudden changes in budgets that's often revealing uh, and whether you know money might be being moved from one budget from an area that's not very particular high profile or sexy like safety but obviously very important and siphoned into somewhere else you know he says he finds stories that way does that sort of thing happen a lot you know you still have some football associations and confederations who don't publish their financial reports at all europe's very lucky like that um they have uh, a much more transparent um regulatory regime around their football organizations than we do in or as part of asia because straight is part of the asian confederation Mm. And David Conn made a point that, uh, look, a lot of these organisations are non-profit, um, but if you look at them closely, you'll often find ones where the, the distribution of the money is very uneven. And where that happens, that's often a sign that, you know, they are possibly corrupted or corruptible. In your, your book, uh, you've, you've detailed how there are things that just look wrong and sums of money uh, going to people. In fact, I think one board member of Football Australia, a volunteer getting something like more than half a million dollars and no one really questioning it, that sort of stuff uh, comes to light when you when you look at it closely. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's yet another example of a publicly available statement. Fortunately, even though Football Australia is a not-for-profit company under Australia's regulatory regime, it's limited by guarantee and has to report to ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. So its reports have to be tabled by the, or lodged by the 30th of November every year. And when I was looking at those over um, a while, while putting together my book, I found that one particular so-called volunteer board member, who also happened to be on the FIFA executive at the time, um, was paid you around about six hundred thousand dollars over three years uh, for the volunteer work that that person was doing, 
In addition to that, at the time, they were being paid 300,000 US dollars a year to be on the FIFA Council, plus getting first-class travel wherever they wanted to go to to attend FIFA meetings or FIFA events, um, and access to FIFA superannuation and pension fund. <laughs> and yet, you know, this, this person also gets lauded as having done such wonderful volunteer work. Now, that's not to say that they haven't put in the time and they haven't got a contribution to make and all of those sorts of things, but please, um, that's... You know, if you're getting $600,000 over three years plus 300000 US a year, that's not volunteer work, not in anyone's language. So your book, uh, Whatever It Takes, lays out what went wrong and what led to um, the bidding process becoming corrupted and why uh, we're now looking at a World Cup taking place in Qatar and not anywhere else. But uh, people are now fond of saying, well... All those decisions were made by an executive committee that's now effectively disbanded. People have retired or been moved off it because of these things coming to light. You know, there's a, a, a new uh, that's under new management effectively. Uh, do you believe that or do you think there's something in the core, the structure of FIFA that means, you know, we could well be looking at something similar in 10 or 15 years time when it comes to future awards of, of tournaments? Uh, well, while it's true to say it's under new management, um, I would also say what hasn't changed is its culture. And what has happened under new management is they've introduced some new policies, some new processes. They do now publish the, some of the bid books on online, not the commercial aspects of it, but other aspects of it. So you can see that. There is now a broader vote for the World Cup, um, well, for men's World Cup anyway, um, so there are some aspects that they've looked at and improved, but um, there is still a whole lot of stuff that takes place behind closed doors where, as I always refer to it, there are deals, double deals and counter deals. Um, and when you have that happening, uh, you can't have a truly transparent and accountable process. And the reason for that is culture, and culture starts at the top, as we know, and until we can change culture, it doesn't matter what they do to process, um, nothing's going to change. And the way that FIFA works today is something that was started in 1974 with the, um, when Wael Havelosh came into power as president of FIFA. And, you know, to him and Sepp Blatter's credit, they took FIFA from being what David Conn actually describes as a cottage industry, um, football was at the time, to being this enormous commercial behemoth and inarguably the single biggest sport in the world. But along the way, they lost all sense of what who the sport is for, what it's for. They are completely inured um, to what is right and what is wrong. The integrity of all of their business decisions um, can be questioned because it's all about who's going to make the most out of this. It's not... Now, as we mentioned earlier, you had to publish your own findings initially, uh, maybe slightly tentatively online on, on your own site, which I guess made you feel very vulnerable. But look, since then, you've been instrumental in the company Fair Play Publishing. Well, I, I have long been a, a fan of football. I grew up in the game. And um, it occurred to me that there were no stories being told about our game. Um, just as in New Zealand. I mean, both Australia and New Zealand are celebrating the centenary of the men's national teams this year. You know, when we played our first game uh, to, against one another, our first international games against one another in um, June 
1922. Yeah, I didn't realise that till I saw the book Burning Ambition on on your site. That, yeah, that's correct, and it's a great it's a great read actually. Um, but he, you know, we our game goes back even further than that here, um, and we have. You know, in that 100 years, we've produced, for instance, 953 men who have played for the national team in almost 950 games. And I thought, well, there's a real, there's a gap here in terms of telling our stories and developing the culture of football. And I, I think part of developing a culture is not just about how many people play or whether we get to host a tournament or how successful our league is, but also sharing our stories. And as you would appreciate, in the case of a book, when you publish a book in um, in Australia or New Zealand, you lodge it with your national library and then it goes into your national archives and it's there forever. So I thought, why not have um, a book company that, uh, that focuses on um, sharing football stories? And we focus on Australian football stories, but it's not limited to that. We have others as well. But yeah, this year in particular, we've had three books that have really focused on um, the centenary of the Australia-New Zealand matches um, and, the, and the men's national teams. One was one that I put together, curated, called Portraits in Fit Football, which was actually a picture book based on the former Fairfax Media Archive, which is a story in itself. It disappeared off to America and we reacquired it back, um, the football part of it. Um, the other was Burning Ambition, um, which is, uh, you know, solely focused on the centenary of the Australian football New Zealand Ashes because it was actually played for an Ashes uh, Ashes trophy. And all up, we've published 34 books and 30 of those would be on Australian football and they're 30 books that wouldn't exist without Fair Play Publishing. That was Bonita Merciades, a former official who exposed corruption in football's world governing body, which played a part in the World Cup ending up controversially in Qatar right now. And she told the tale in a lid-lifting book called Whatever It Takes and started her own publishing company, Fair Play Publishing, to do it. And you can hear more about all that in the online version of the story. It's on the RNZ website. Just look for the title, Blowing the Whistle on World Cup Corruption.